You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Today's episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kinway, Hefe, Zuman, Matthew the Navigator, the Pirate Nopales, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Episode 100 is finally here, just in time for 2019. We've just wrapped up our current story, and we're about to move on to a big new chapter in the history of pirates and piracy. It's going to begin where we left off before, talking about the Barbary pirates. But we've been talking about Barbary for some time now six or seven months, and I thought that a refresher might be in order before moving on. And I was always intending to do that, but it worked out in such a way that this transition occurred on our 100th episode and at the beginning of the new year. Now, I'm not the sort of storyteller who can map something out that carefully. It's just kind of a lucky break, but it occurred to me that this might be a good time to do something interesting and maybe fun. I know that for some people, 100 episodes is a lot of time to invest in a new show. It can be kind of a big ask when somebody wants to jump in and there are 100 episodes of content standing before them. And then for others, there are those out there who just want a good pirate story. They're not really interested in dozens of episodes about religion or politics or even privateers. For that very reason, oftentimes the buccaneering era will get kicked out of the golden age of piracy. But now we're moving into the real pirates, the undisputed outlaws of the high seas, the almost mythical, legendary, sea-roving revolutionaries. And if that's what you're looking for, this is an excellent place to start listening, right when we're about to begin those tales. So, for our New Year's episode and our big 100th episode... I'm going to get all of you caught up. If you're new here, this will be an excellent entry point. If you've been with us for a long time now, this will be a, hopefully, fun and enlightening recap. If you have listened to the show in the past, you may be aware that I have a tendency to be a bit... Oh, we want to avoid terms like long-winded, but I have uh, an endearment towards context. This episode proved to be a bit of a challenge, and kind of a fun one. I enjoyed telling this story in as brief and entertaining a way as possible, and I hope you enjoy it as well. This is episode 100, The Story So Far, Part 1. To begin, one needs to define exactly what a pirate is. 
and that's actually a more difficult question to answer than it seems. There are layers of semantics and legal jargon that one has to unpack to begin to even get at the answer. On the surface, a pirate might look like anyone that chooses to steal the goods of others at sea, but it's a lot more complex than that. We could call anyone who fit that definition a sea rover, and pirates were most certainly sea rovers, but not all sea rovers were pirates. There have been sea rovers ever since humankind first began to explore the seas. With all of those fishing boats and trading vessels out there, the allure is kind of obvious. You know, why spend all of those hours working hard at bringing in a catch? Why work at haggling with other merchants when you can just take the fruits of the labor of others? Especially when you're all alone, out of sight of land, who's going to stop you? We have evidence of sea rovers dating back into the mists of very early history from all over the world. The most famous of these are probably the Bronze Age Sea Peoples. They were the people partly at least responsible for the Bronze Age collapse. They raided the Hittites, Phoenicians, the Syrians, and the Egyptians. They might have been Minoan, or they could have been Trojan, or even Etruscan, but no one really knows. And the sea people might have been pirates, but it's equally possible they weren't. Their raids look a lot more like the buccaneers than traditional pirates. They attacked cities from the sea. In many ways, they probably operated a lot more like Vikings. That is, they went to sea, they plundered, but then they took the spoils back home to their families, and, this is the key bit, to their warlords or their kings. In that respect, they were probably a lot more like privateers than pirates. More on that in a bit. Now, moving on, the Greeks had plenty of pirate problems of their own, but more interesting to me were the Cilician pirates who plagued Rome. They roved from a land called Cilicia, on the southern coast of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Now, Rome already knew well the sting of pirates emanating from a region without proper governmental structure. When Rome finally defeated Carthage at the end of the Punic Wars, at first they just sort of left Carthage empty. And that was fine for Rome, but, well, it wasn't really empty. There were still people there. Not a lot, they'd done a pretty good job depopulating the region, but there were still people living there. But now those people were left without any commercial or agricultural infrastructure. The people that were left there in the lands of Carthage had really only one source of income to turn to, the sea and piracy. Now, Rome dealt with that issue in what would prove to be a very Roman way, by rebuilding. They built roads and aqueducts and civilization all across North Africa. You know, here's food and schools and hospitals and stuff, so stop being pirates. But when the Cilician pirates became a real problem, the Romans weren't out to conquer Asia Minor, at least not yet. There were a number of reasons, including supplies, manpower, political will, military will, but perhaps most importantly was the fact that there was already an empire there, the Seleucid Empire, so Rome couldn't just go in and start building as they had in Carthage. And then there was another problem with King Mithridates in the region, and that was this whole other thing. But were they to just sail in and attack the pirates at Cilicia? That would have been an invasion. They didn't want to do that, not yet. But the Cilician pirates were a real threat to the people of Rome. 
trade was suffering in that corner of the Mediterranean, and so were the Roman people. The Cilician pirates even went so far as to kidnap a young patrician who would go on to become the most famous Roman who ever lived, Julius Caesar. They held him for a ransom, but he proved to be lucky in that, mostly, you know, because he was rich. Most Romans captured by the Cilicians were just sold off as slaves. But if the Romans couldn't just go in and attack Cilicia, what were they to do? They had to find a justification for their actions, so they turned to an ancient legal principle, a principle ancient even to the Romans, mare liberum, the liberty of the sea, or the freedom of the sea. Under mare liberum, which is similar to some of our modern rules concerning international waters, the seas belonged to no kingdom and no republic. They were free. And if the seas belonged to no man, then any criminals operating on the sea required a different distinction. The Romans needed to give them a distinction. They were a deeply legal people, and their culture was rooted in many ways in the legal process, so they needed a legal defense. They decided to use that principle of mare liberum to brand these nationless sea robbers hostis humanus generis enemies of the whole human race. And that distinction is important. It decrees that all nations should treat these pirates as outlaws. Literally, people outside the bounds of any law of any nation. They were to be dealt with when and how was deemed necessary regardless of nation, usually by killing them. Maybe, if you happened to be an ambitious Roman general, you might capture those pirates, or at least the officers. You might march them before you, in chains, in one of your many fantastic triumphs. And that's precisely how one of Rome's greatest generals dealt with these Cilician pirates. He was a member of the first triumvirate alongside Caesar. His name was Pompey Magnus, Pompey the Great. And Pompey became the Great due to his campaigns in the east, subduing and conquering Asia Minor, Syria, Judea, that whole eastern region. And all of that began with his campaign to scatter the Cilician pirates. So there you have it, legally speaking the definition of a pirate, hostis humanus generis, enemies of the whole human race. And that distinction has sort of held up, even to modern times, Pirates operating in international waters are still treated in much the same fashion. They are outlaws who can be dealt with by people of any nation, however the laws of that nation decree. And that's a good definition for a pirate. But it's kind of unsatisfying, isn't it? When we talk about pirates, we're not usually talking about Bronze Age sea peoples or Greco-Roman pirates or Vikings. We're talking about the almost legendary, pirates of the West Indies. You know, we're talking about rum and parrots and peg legs, hooks for hand and pieces of eight and eye patches, the windward passage and the windward fleet, cannons and the cutlass and the flintlock pistol. We're talking about Captain Hook, Jack Sparrow, Captain Flint. We're talking about Blackbeard, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Captain Kidd, and that's what the future holds for the Pirate History Podcast. And I should be clear, that doesn't even begin to encompass what I think a pirate is, and I 
think I've made a good argument for that over the past two years talking about privateers and other various sea rovers who were on the fringes of piracy, and we haven't even gotten to the South China Sea pirates or the Revolutionary or Napoleonic War pirates. But those are who people think about, those quasi-mythological figures. So let's take this opportunity to look at the people and events that brought those myths into the very real world. Those pirates, your Captain Hooks, your Blackbeards, by and large they were European. There were West African freed slaves and Native Americans among the pirates, not to mention people from East Asia and the Islamic world, quite a few of them, in fact. But even their story is deeply intertwined in the European story. The reason that those freed slaves or Native Americans became pirates in the first place is because they got caught up in the story of European expansion. And for those peoples, that's rarely a happy story. But I think it's important to look at that story of European expansion and the Age of Discovery. And that story begins with the commerce and rare and valuable merchandise. Dyes like indigo, spices like cinnamon, pepper, tea, and silk... These commodities came mostly from modern-day Indonesia, China, and India. These goods, which were extremely valuable and only grew more valuable the further west they went from their places of origin, they were carried over thousands of miles of difficult mountains and deserts on a trading route called the Silk Road. Now, the Silk Road started in the farthest reaches of Asia. It traveled through Persia, or Arabia, and finally into the Byzantine Empire, to the capital there at Constantinople. The Byzantine Empire was the Greek half of the Roman Empire. Though it was still alive and thriving a thousand years after the Roman Empire in the West fell, a large part of why they were still thriving was the commerce coming down the Silk Road. Nearly all of those goods ended up in Constantinople. And it wasn't just goods that were traveling down the Silk Road. There were ideas and religions and new technologies. All five of the top five religions practiced in the world today were traded up and down the Silk Road. That's why you'll find communities of Jewish descent in India or communities of Buddhist descent in Eastern Europe. There were also things like pasta and rice and new forms of pottery that were traded up and down the Silk Road, as well as plague, as it happened. There were also technologies that are central to our story of pirates and piracy that were being passed down the Silk Road. For example, a number of Asian shipbuilding techniques would be adopted by people along the Silk Road and eventually passed on to Europe. There was steel as well, at least the type of steel production that would become famous for gleaming knights and shining armor and the swords that many of our pirates used, but most famously... There was, naturally, gunpowder. Gunpowder is well known to be Chinese in origin, and famously it was originally used for displays of fireworks. There were military uses of gunpowder in China, but the military applications remained limited, until, that is, the Europeans got their hands on it. The Europeans really wanted to use the pressurized gases created by gunpowder to shoot projectiles, but... Any tubes that they attempted to use kept exploding. And I should note that there were Chinese and Indian and Islamic developers that tried something similar, 
In China, they used bamboo tubes and these pressurized gases to shoot out large arrows or spears, but they ran into the same problem when trying to use highly pressurized gas. The tubes kept exploding. But then some industrious European coopers applied their craft to the firearm. They arranged lathes of iron in a circle, forming a tube, and then they wrapped them in tightly wound iron bands. This gave these tubes both the strength and flexibility to withstand gunpowder explosions. And when you looked at it, it really wasn't that different from the Cooper's usual product, barrels. Which is why today we call the tube through which a bullet is shot the barrel of a gun. I'd like to thank Kevin Stroud and the History of English podcast, my current obsession, for that little tidbit. But back to the Silk Road and the never-ending dominance of the Byzantine Empire. In 1453, the Byzantine Empire fell. They had been under attack for several centuries. They were put under almost constant pressure from the new kid on the imperial block. I'm talking about the rise of Islam, of course. Constantinople would go on to be renamed Istanbul and ruled by a succession of Islamic sultans. As you might expect, this created something of a crisis in Europe. There was, naturally, the fervor caused by the fall of the Christian bulwark of Byzantium to the ravenous heathen hordes of the Turk. And I make light of that because, well, a few reasons. First of all, Europe was only a few years out from going to war with itself, and half of Europe would find that the Ottoman Empire turned out to be better allies than the other half of Europe. There's also the fact that Europe could have stopped this from happening if they had cared to. But as we discussed earlier, the Byzantine Empire was the Greek half of the Roman Empire, and they followed the Greek Orthodox Church, so naturally the Pope didn't really care if they fell, and Europe followed suit. The real crisis wasn't one of the ravenous hordes of the Turk, it was a crisis in the markets. The real issue that most Europeans saw at the time, those with money and power at least, came in the form of lost revenue. The Ottomans, as it turned out, were much less willing to trade with the Crusader states that they now bordered, and the Crusader states felt the same. This meant that there were fewer goods traveling into Europe from the Silk Road, and a lot of coffers started looking suddenly very empty. Europe needed to find a new route to the rich lands of Asia, of which they actually knew very little, and they needed to find a route that would circumvent the Islamic world. And this gives rise to what's sometimes called the Age of Exploration or the Age of Discovery. And that story, at its heart, is a Spanish story. You know how you'll sometimes hear the 20th century called the American century, or the 19th, the British century? I could argue with either of those, but I would be hard-pressed to argue the claim that the 16th century was the Spanish century. And all of that began in 1492. Now, we all know that in 1492, Christopher Columbus sailed across the Atlantic Ocean in search of Asia. He declared upon reaching the Bahamas that he had found India. Everybody except Columbus pretty much immediately realized they hadn't found Asia. Even Columbus's own family and lieutenants realized they weren't in Asia pretty quickly. Many of them had read the writings of explorers like Marco Polo, and they knew that this didn't match. 
But they also read in those writings of Marco Polo that Asia was filled with palaces built of solid gold, that the rivers were lined with gold pebbles, that the mountains and fields were so full of gold that it just sprang up out of the ground. Now the people who had actually been to the New World reported that these were all exaggerations. This wasn't Asia and it wasn't like that, but everyone just assumed they were lying. You want it for yourself, you know, kind of like Bilbo. And even though everybody in Europe realized this wasn't Asia, they assumed that the gold must be there like Marco Polo had written. And this kind of kick-started a gold rush, literally. So anyone who could finance an expedition bought ships and horses and hired soldiers and bribed every well-born noble son they could find and traveled west to conquer. These became the conquistadores, men like Hernán Cortés and Pizarro, men who cut out huge slices of the Americas for their own personal kingdoms. And for a little while, the Spanish crowns let them do as they pleased. It was a lot cheaper to allow industrious, independent conquerors to do battle, to allow them to enslave the natives, to build farms and infrastructure, to establish cities, in short, to do all of the hard work of colonization. But once those independent conquerors went broke or died or were overthrown, the crown could swoop in and claim their territory and establish a viceroyalty. What is a viceroyalty, I hear you asking, will allow me to explain. A viceroy is literally a vice-king, similar to the way we have vice-presidents here in the U.S. The French for king is roy and a viceroy is simply a second-in-command to the king, though there could be a number of them. A viceroyalty is a sub-kingdom. Essentially, it's a kingdom in its own right, ruled by a viceroy, but one that owes allegiance to the imperial throne. Now there's an analogy I'm about to use here, and I'd like to apologize in advance. Imagine that this is Star Wars, but instead of being a lackey to the emperor, Darth Vader was a Sith Lord in command of his own solar system, maybe the Dagobah system. Vader would have been in complete control of everything that happened at Dagobah, as long as he kept the realm in order, paid his taxes, and sent soldiers to the Galactic Empire. That would, well, it would certainly alleviate the job of Emperor Palpatine and the Imperial Navy. Now I know that the regional governors will now have direct control, Fear will keep the local systems in line, fear of this battle station. But all of that suggests a centralized command structure. Everything had to go up to the Emperor. If Vader were essentially autonomous, outside of the Imperial regulations, which were his responsibility, Palpatine and the Navy would have a whole solar system they didn't have to govern. And that's very much how the Spanish Empire worked. And you know, if things got really out of hand, if Vader decided to destroy an entire planet with his own private Death Star, or if one Viceroy or another decided to depopulate his lands almost entirely, the Royal Armada could swoop in and save the day, but it was almost always the Viceroy's job to put out any fires that might flare up in his Viceroyalty. And I'm about to get way nerdier, so buckle up. If we continue with the Star Wars analogy, there wouldn't have just been Darth Vader ruling a solar system, there were lots of solar systems out there. So what if 
Darth Maul and Count Dooku were still alive and in control of their own systems. If other Sith Lords controlled other systems, or, you know, other Viceroys controlled other Viceroyalties, we might expect them to fight over their territory from time to time. It might be shocking for Sith Lords to not do so, and it was much the same with the Viceroys. This was not a bug in the system, though this was a feature. Again, if the fighting got out of hand, got so fierce that it might interrupt production, the Crown could put a stop to it, but mostly they just let their vassals duke it out. In the end, it would ferret out any weakness among them, and on the whole, it would make the Empire stronger. After all, both the Sith and the Spanish Empire valued strength above all else. So with this system in place, Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor and King of Spain, and I'm really tempted to continue on with the Palpatine-Charles V analogy, but I'm done with Star Wars, he was able to build the first empire that had the right to claim the distinction of an empire on which the sun never set. Once the Spanish Empire incorporated the Portuguese throne, the Spanish Empire included the entire Western Hemisphere. There were also huge swaths of mainland Asia, Indonesia, Malaysia, most of Western Africa, then Spain, the Netherlands, Germany, Austria, and Portugal, and that's leaving several out. The solution to the problem with the Ottoman conquest of Constantinople and the dissolution of the Silk Road was, apparently, to conquer the entire rest of the world. And it worked. Spain was growing immensely wealthy throughout the first half of the 16th century. Essentially, instead of using the Silk Road, they used their fantastic ships, the Galleon, to traverse the entire rest of the world, including the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. But as you might imagine, with one single monarch getting so wealthy, the rest of Europe started growing a little jealous of all the goods and riches that he controlled. And that brings us to the second major event of 1492, at least in the Spanish story. But I don't want to spend a whole lot of time and backstory on this, so I'm going to try to do it as quickly as possible. Most of the Iberian Peninsula was Islamic under the Caliphate of Cordoba, but the handful of Catholic warlords who still held any lands there said, hey, what's with all the Muslims? Boom, holy war, they called it the Reconquista. In 1492 they won, then they looked around and said, hey, there are still a few Muslims hanging about, and I think I saw a Jew the other day. Boom, Spanish Inquisition, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Then they kicked out all the Jews, Muslims, witches, scientists, doctors, anyone who could read, know-it-alls, left-handed people, political radicals, and people who microwaved fish at the office. Then the monarchs of Aragon and Castile said, hey, want to get married? Boom, Spain exists. Then they said, hey, Portugal, can we have your crown? Boom, Portugal doesn't exist. So, the Jews who were kicked out of Spain in what was, frankly, one of the worst atrocities until the Holocaust in European history fled all over the place. But, pertinent to our story, they fled in large numbers to England and the Netherlands. This proved to be a problem for Spain, as it turns out, it's a bad idea to kick out everyone that knew how to read, everyone who understood basic sanitation, everyone who could do math, everyone who knew medicine, anyone who had any practical knowledge in commerce or trade or banking. Those are the middle class, and you don't want to kick all of them out of your country. Those Iberian Jewish exiles took the knowledge of all of their crafts with them. You can see where this is going. 
Even though Spain was importing unbelievable amounts of treasure from all over the world, without that educated middle class to manage all of it, they wasted most of their money foolishly. On the other hand, England and the Netherlands especially profited from their now well-managed and maintained markets. And England and the Netherlands obtained one other bit of knowledge that, to our story at least, is extremely important from these Jewish exiles. They learned shipbuilding. That Spanish galleon was currently the undisputed commander of the Seven Seas. It was the best ship in the world. But once England and the Netherlands gained both the knowledge and the resources, thanks in large part to all of those exiles, they both started building their own ships and their own fleets that were capable of standing toe-to-toe with the Spanish galleon. Now, France was a step behind England and the Netherlands in this. They wanted to, They were trying to follow suit, but France was busy dealing with their own religious troubles, and I haven't even talked about that yet. Okay. In 1517, an Augustinian friar named Martin Luther nailed 95 problems the Catholic Church had to a church door. The Pope said, didn't you go a little too far? Luther said, don't you think the Catholic Church went a little too far? And Luther was excommunicated. Then someone translated the Bible. Then someone printed them up on the new fangled printing press. Then someone handed out the juicier, more radical bits to the people. Then about half of Europe realized they'd been lied to about God, looked at Martin Luther over here, and said, yeah, I do think the Catholic Catholic Church went a little too far, and suddenly everybody was fighting everybody. Then the King of England said, hey, can I get a new wife over here? The Pope said, no, boom, Church of England. Then the Spanish Netherlands said, hey, can I get a little freedom over here? The King said, no, boom, 80 years war. France melted for about 40 years until they had a king who really liked Jim Beam, and suddenly England had a heretical red-headed witch on the throne. Boom, Francis Drake. Francis Drake wasn't the first sea rover of the Age of Sail. Far from it. He wasn't even the first English sea rover of the Age of Sail, but he may be the most famous early sea rover of the Age of Sail. And his story shares so many parallels with the stories of pirates to come that I always feel it's a good place to begin. And his story begins with the rise of the West African slave trade. Due to the 1494 Treaty of Tordesillas, in which the Pope split up the entire world between Portugal and Spain, the Portuguese had papal license to colonize Africa. That means the Pope gave them the exclusive license to trade in human cargo from the uncivilized lands they now owned. The Spanish had the same right in the Americas, but that would prove less profitable. That means that Spain and Portugal now, according to the Pope, owned literally everything and everyone, and they could now trade human beings for money. When all of the enslaved Native Americans in the Spanish Americas started dying, mostly from disease, the Portuguese had a ready supply of human beings from Africa that they could capture, brutalize, and sell to the Spanish. Thus, the transatlantic slave trade was born. The Spanish and the Portuguese were all growing fabulously wealthy, selling these slaves, buying these slaves, and putting them to work in mines and fields all across the world. After a little while, England started looking over at Spain and said, Hey, how come they get all the land and human beings? That doesn't seem fair. We want a little bit of that. Now, that was currently banned by the Pope, but the Queen of England, Elizabeth I, said... 
Well, I'm the highest religious authority in England, and we don't do the whole Pope thing anymore, so yeah, we're going to take some of those human beings. And she sent a ship full of sailors to do just that. That ship, the Jesus of Lubbock, was owned by a relative of Francis Drake, and Drake was a young officer on board. That ship sailed to Africa, where they stole a bunch of human beings from the Portuguese, and then on to what they called the West Indies, even though everybody knew it wasn't India. The plan here was never to steal those slaves and then bring them back to England. You know, owning human beings looked kinda bad after all. That's the sort of thing that only those filthy Spaniards do. Instead, Drake and his comrades were just going to capture slaves and sell them to the Spanish. That's totally different. And to be fair here, the mission of capturing Africans for sale may not have been what Queen Elizabeth intended. That was quite likely the brainchild of the people planning the mission, the owners of the Jesus of Lubbock. The plan was to sail for the plantations in the West Indies and to sell those slaves at a much lower price than the Portuguese could. They were undercutting the market here. And they did really well at it for a minute. The plantation owners in the Americas just jumped at the bargain prices that these Englishmen were offering. But once the Spanish authorities caught wind of what was happening, they lured the Jesus of Lubbock into an ambush. They attacked them. Only about half of the Englishmen escaped alive. But what's important about this voyage is... Well, first of all, there's what Francis Drake saw. He got to see the New World. He saw the bountiful lands. He saw the paradise that was the Caribbean. And he saw the potential for earning huge amounts of money. Not by selling slaves, but by stealing it from the Spanish. And after... The Jesus of Lubbock and their companions had been attacked by the Spanish in that ambush, while at the time it's important to note that they were breaking no English laws, Drake was able to petition for a letter of mark and legally sail back to the West Indies and steal as much Spanish money as he wanted. So let's talk for just a minute about privateers, about what they are, about what they did, and about what differentiates them from pirates. At its heart, it's a semantic discussion, and it's one that can easily get bogged down. In fact, more than a few major conflicts have begun because of that semantic discussion getting bogged down. At face value, what privateers do looks very much like what pirates do. They're sea rovers. They sail their ships out to sea where they can prey on unsuspecting vessels. They capture those vessels violently if necessary, they plunder them, they take the cargo, and then they capture whatever they might need, including, possibly, the ship itself. Now that sounds a lot like a pirate raid, and they were a lot like pirate raids. There's a direct progression from the privateers to what we think of when we talk about pirates, but there's one very big difference. A pirate is an outlaw, a criminal with no nation, Hostis humanis generis, enemy of the whole human race. But privateers were not pirates. They sailed for their nation, usually on behest of the monarch, but it could be the council or the senate or whatever. Their actions were absolutely piratical, except that they attacked only approved ships. And they had to have a license. They had to have a document that legally allowed them to attack certain ships, 
at least according to the laws of their own nation. In France, these were called letters of mark. In England, they were called letters of retribution, though I'll probably usually refer to them as letters of mark. In theory, these letters of mark were intended to allow private ship owners to recoup losses that they incurred at the hands of their enemies. For example, if you were an innocent merchant and some scurvy-ridden Spaniard attacked your ship and took your goods, you could apply for a letter of mark to go out and capture Spanish goods until you'd collected enough to pay for the lost income. Even if those innocent transactions happened to be illegal in the empire in which you were transacting, that was still not illegal under English law, and you could have that letter of mark. In practice, though, privateers were more than that. They were a cheap, expendable, mercenary volunteer navy. When England went to war with Spain a few years later, Queen Elizabeth started giving out letters of mark to anyone with a couple of cannons and a ship, and she really wasn't very particular about how they attacked the Spanish as long as they brought a cut back to her. The use of privateers is the tactic of a monarch who doesn't have a lot of money. We'll see Elizabeth do it in her war with Spain. We'll see the Netherlands do it in their war for independence. We'll see the French do it in some of their territorial holdings, especially as they're building up their navy. And when the Spanish Empire begins to decline, about a century from now, we'll see them start to employ the use of privateers. Imagine having your own soldiers pay you for the pleasure of going to war. That's how privateers worked. But it worked out for all parties involved. The privateers liked it because piracy, legal piracy in this case, was such a lucrative business. And that's precisely what Francis Drake did. He applied for a letter of mark from the Queen after that Spanish ambush, it was granted, and he sailed back to the West Indies to conduct what is considered by some the most impressive and influential act of piracy ever conducted. Drake arrived at the Isthmus of Panama, what was called terra firma by the Spanish, or the Spanish Main by the English. He had two ships with him, and he arrived in 1572. Where he landed was very near the modern-day Panama Canal. The Panama Canal is there because it is the narrowest expanse of land separating the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans, and it was used for much the same purpose at the time, only instead of a water route, there was a mule train that traveled across the Panama Canal from the city of Panama to a small town called Nombre de Dios on the northern coast, and that mule train carried millions of dollars in gold, silver, and jewels. And that's millions in 1572 dollars. Adjusted for inflation, it would easily be in the billions. That treasure was coming, well, some of it was coming from Asia, some of it was coming from Mexico, but most of it was coming from South America, from the western coast of South America, which had tons of Spanish settlements. The Andes were difficult to traverse, though, so they used ships to carry it to Panama. Once it was carried overland to Nombre de Dios, it would be loaded on other ships which were waiting to return to Spain with all of the loot. Now that mule train traveled across the Isthmus twice a year, and Drake had come just in time to capture it. But he found out that the entire adventure was difficult, arduous, painful. 
He was frustrated in his first attempt to capture the mule train, mostly due to his ignorance of the Panamanian jungle. His men grew sick, they didn't have the necessary immunities. Then they grew hungry, and then they grew tired. But instead of dying, as so many other pirates did in circumstances like this, Drake and his men were taken in by the local indigenous people, the Kuna. Next time, we're going to talk a fair bit about the Kuna. They play a fairly major role in our story, but this is our introduction to them. The Kuna were a Colombian tribe that were forced into Panama by a rival tribe, and then forced by the Spanish into the swamplands called Darien in eastern Panama. They really didn't like the Spanish. In fact, they'd been engaged in a decades-long guerrilla campaign against them. They weren't exactly successful, but they were never conquered. They stayed independent from Spanish rule. And when it became clear that the English under Francis Drake and the Kuna both hated Spain, they became sort of allies. This English-Kuna alliance will prove to be long-lasting in our tale. The Kuna fed and healed Drake's men. They sheltered them far from the eyes of the Spanish, which was something they were very good at for the entirety of the equatorial winter. During that time period, another group of Europeans arrived, another group that hated the Spanish, this time French privateers. As it turns out, they were also here to raid the Spanish, and all three groups agreed to work together to aid one another in their goals. They spent those months planning, trying to figure out the best way to go about exactly what they were going to do. And when spring finally arrived and the time for the mule train had come, the privateers, both English and French, set out into the jungle. This time, however, they had a better plan and Kuna guides. They had people with them who knew the hidden paths of Panama. They had people who knew what plants were safe to eat and which to avoid. People who knew where to find water and you know, how to avoid being eaten alive by mosquitoes or much, much bigger animals. And this time the privateers were much more successful. There's a moment here, according to legend, where one of those Kuna guides took Drake up into the trees. He climbed the side of a mountain with him, and he told Drake to climb a tall tree at the very top of the mountain. And when Drake did, he could reportedly see the Caribbean, the North Sea as he would have called it, and on the other side, he caught his first glimpse of the Pacific Ocean. That's a fun bit of myth that probably didn't happen, but once that's out of the way, Drake and these privateers got down to business. They found the Spanish mule train as it started north. They stalked it through the jungle for a number of miles. They had more than a few false starts, when it was almost the perfect time to attack, but not quite. Now, Panama isn't that wide. It doesn't take a mule team that long to cross it, not even when they're laden down with gold and gems, so time was running out here. But at almost the last possible moment, when the mule team, which was complete with weary, sweating, bleary-eyed Spanish guards, when they were almost to safety, that's when the privateers attacked. There really wasn't much of a fight here, though. The Spanish were in no state to defend themselves. The combined force of English, French, and Kuna guides struck at them from the trees. This was a Kuna tactic that the pirates, I'm sorry, the privateers, learned quite well. In short order, the entire mule train, 
half a year's gross product in gold and silver from all of South America, from Mexico, and from Asia, well, it was in the hands of these privateers. That is quite probably the greatest haul ever captured in any piratical raid in all of history. For this action, Sir Winston Churchill called Sir Francis Drake the master thief of the unknown world. There are only two or three other prizes that even begin to compete with this. There's the Ganji Sawai, or the Gunsway, that Henry Avery captured. There's the Witta, under Black Bart Roberts, and, you know, a handful of others, but none of them even come close to this. Not to this prize. This was 20 tons of precious metal. That's 40,000 pounds of treasure. That's 20,000 kilograms in silver and gold. Now, there weren't a lot of pirates here in the Panamanian jungle. If we do a little math here, there were, if we're being generous and say that there were 100 pirates out there, that would require every man to carry 200 pounds of treasure if they were to take it all. And as I said, that's generous. There may have been half of that. That's impossible. Even if they weren't tired and hungry and marching through mountainous jungle, it would have been difficult to carry that weight. They did have the mule team, and they put a few of them to use, but they still had to leave several tons of uncoined silver bars behind them. But they were still able to carry most of the treasure out of the jungle. But then they ran into another problem. When they got back to where they'd left their boats, the boats were gone. They were standing there, on the beach of Panama, with the Caribbean lapping against their feet, and no boats to get back to their ships which were anchored offshore, and the soldiers from Panama were quickly catching up from behind. They had to act fast, so Drake rallied the men and buried most of the treasure, nearly all of it in fact. The only treasure they didn't leave behind was the gold, that was light and valuable enough, and in small enough quantity that they could still carry it, the rest, the silver, they buried up and down the coast of Panama. They spread out to do so, so that even if the Spanish should find one hoard, they wouldn't find more. They buried it on the beaches and in the jungles and up on the mountains. Now this wasn't intended to be buried treasure. It wasn't intended to be hidden away. It was to keep the treasure out of Spanish hands for a small time, just long enough for them to build a raft and go collect their ships out at sea. The plan here was to come back and collect the silver and carry it home with them. But as soon as they got back out to their ships, they realized that the Panamanians had sent out a much more powerful force than anybody had anticipated, and the treasure fleet had caught word of what happened as well. They locked the coast down, and Drake realized that they wouldn't be able to return for all of that silver. When Drake climbed aboard his ship, he looked haggard and bedraggled. He hadn't been on board in some time. He was tired and worn after his adventure. The men who had stayed behind to look after the ship, well, they were worried. They asked him how it had gone. Drake looked at them. He was downhearted and despondent. Then he laughed and pulled a gold necklace out from beneath his coat, and he exclaimed, Our voyage is made, lads! I mean, even without the silver, they had several hundred pounds of pure gold on their persons. One and all, these pirates were well off. This score, what they were able to take back home with them, 
Well, it wasn't as big as what might have been. It wasn't the greatest of all time. But it was successful. It does rank up there with the Widow or the Gunsway. And it was far better than nearly all the pirate raids about which we have any accounting. And it did... Well, it did what Elizabeth wanted it to do. Yeah, there was bring the money back to England, and that was important. But more than anything, Elizabeth sent her privateers out to damage the Spanish, and this deprived the Spanish of half a year's treasure. Even if they found a good amount of that silver buried on the Panamanian beaches and jungles, they almost certainly didn't find all of it. This was a blow to their economy. So the Spanish started calling Drake El Draque, or the dragon, or, you know, less fun, the Drake, Drake was a terrible villain in their eyes, and frankly, rightfully so. This was a huge act. He was also, to the Spanish, nothing more than a pirate. So the Spanish ambassador wrote to England, and I'm going to paraphrase here, Hey, uh, one of your people just took a bunch of my stuff. I'm going to need you to pay us back for that. And England said back in, like, form, Nah, it's fine. I gave him a note that said he could do it. And then Spain and England were basically at war. It was, naturally, a lot more complicated than that, geopolitically speaking. There was the Netherlands and their fight for independence, which was involved in all of this, but Drake was definitely a major factor in the lead-up to the Anglo-Spanish War. He would also wind up being one of the greatest players in that war, after he circumnavigated the globe, the first Englishman to do so, and on that voyage he captured a bunch more Spanish treasure, after that he led the fleet that defeated the Spanish Armada in 1588. He would go on to lead raids on Cadiz and several more excursions into the New World, where he would eventually die in a Spanish attack. His story is one of the great stories of English privateering, and... Drake serves as something of the godfather of English piracy. However, that war would end in essentially a stalemate. There was no clear victor in the Anglo-Spanish War, but I would argue that in the long run, England won that war. At least, at the end of the war, they were more powerful, they were more influential, and they were a lot richer. On the other hand, Spain was weaker. They were poorer, and they looked not nearly as strong as they once had on the world stage. And the coming century, the 1600s, I would argue, are going to prove my point here. We're going to talk about the 1600s next time. You could call that the story of the buccaneers. And one of the myths that the buccaneers clung to was the myth of buried treasure. This is, of course, one of the great pirate myths, but buccaneers were known to send parties ashore for the pure purpose of trying to find treasure. Now, sometimes they were searching for mines, or sometimes they would actually pan for gold, but there were more than a few when they hit these Panamanian beaches that would search for Drake's lost treasure. Spanish records show that they found some of Drake's treasure, but not nearly all of it. Now, that may have been falsified. Some of that treasure may have fallen into the pockets of some of the treasure collectors and officials nearby, but there was probably quite a bit left out there. We don't know how much any pirates or explorers may have found. 
but the Panamanian government has actually spent time searching for this lost Spanish treasure of Francis Drake, and they found a little bit years and years ago, but since then, nothing. And some people believe that deep in the jungles of Panama there still may be a cache of his stolen Spanish silver. I hope everybody enjoyed this little look back at the background behind the story of pirates and piracy. But next time we're going to be talking about the entire era of the Buccaneers. I'm looking forward to it, and I hope you are too. So thank you for listening. And thanks to everybody who has helped to support the show over our past two and a half years. We've grown a lot in 2018, and I'm thankful to everyone who has helped get this show out there. I love doing it, and I hope all of you enjoy listening to it, and in 2019, I'm excited for the places we're going to be going. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening, and a happy new year.